Are you listening? Stai ascoltando? Voi slusciate? The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. Are you listening? Hello, world. Welcome to another edition of the Global Voices Podcast. I'm your audio friend, Jamila. In this edition, we're going to school. Whether that means the extreme teaching on the River Niger, hearing the truth from our younger friends, or thinking back to some of the Global Voices authors and editors' fondest memories and most memorable moments in education. So what were school days like for the Global Voices writers? Explosive, in some cases. Paula Goes is our multilingual editor, and here is one of her more reactionary memories. The story I'm going to tell you about is one of the funniest memories I have from the School of Journalism in Federal University of Alagoas, back home in Brazil. The year was 1997, and I was part of a committee organizing a regional meeting of social communication schools, bringing together students from nine states. There were hundreds of students living on the campus for a whole week, and we had to entertain and feed all of them to the highest standard possible with the smallest budget we could afford. We didn't have much money at all, but we wanted to have fun. There are two memories from that day that stick out, and I'm sure that all the students there will remember these events forever. The first memory is about lunch. There was this potato mayonnaise salad, which was very, very tasty. It was so delicious that it caused many people to overindulge themselves. I myself spawned three servings into my iron stomach, and I still remember the uh, lemony quality it had, you know. But I also remember, in hindsight, hearing someone saying something like, the potato salad was glowing in the dark. <laughs> I didn't pay my attention at the time. The second memory was about the same evening. We had this fancy dress party themed superheroes, which was the highlight of the program for the week. I think it was the last evening, so everyone was really looking forward to it. And I remember the party was very good. It was very lively, it was full of people until very late in the evening. And then people started to disappear one by one to start with, and then groups. And I remember that I was dancing with this very good friend of mine. And in the blink of an eye, he just left without saying goodbye. I looked around and then noticed that all of a sudden the dancing floor was nearly empty. So I went to look for my friends and then I realized that the many bathrooms had queues that were running around the campus. We had run out of toilet paper, it became a rare commodity. There was one group there who had a good stock of it and they were selling it with the price skyrocketing by the second. The situation only got worse, but the full extent of the problem was only made clear when we made available five excursion buses for everyone who would need to go to the local hospital and 
they were not enough. We still had to hire taxis. We needed to call friends who had cars to come and help us to take everyone to hospital. And it didn't help at all. That was April's full day. So in the beginning, doctors and nurses thought that they were being tricked and they refused to see the crowd that was arriving. You know, they were faint Spider-Man, they were crying Superman, they were sad Batmans carrying near-death robins, they were olive oils screaming, help, Popeye! <laughs> because you see, we didn't lose a sense of humor. Everyone survived, and next day we had the prize for the best costume, and it was given to the three girls dressed as Peebles Flintstones, Okay, they were not superheroes, but we all agreed that they had made a very versatile choice of dress, you know. Nobody could tell a spot from a splodge from a stain. More stories from our authors and editors in a moment. But now, an incredible journey of teaching, boats and the river. Eddie Avila, director of Rising Voices, talks with Bukare Konate in Mali about his idea that brought the internet to the villages along the waterway. The trip was about to give piece of advice to rural people to take care of the river Niger. It's the project of UNESCO in the project Niger Loire. And how did you travel to the different villages? We traveled by boat. It was very fascinating, very interesting. At the beginning, I was afraid because it was my first time to travel on the river. But after some hours, I liked it because I noticed that it's different from traveling by bus or by plane because there are other things we can see on the river different from what we can see uh, when we are in the bus. What was the reception of the villages when you came and showed them the internet and showed them what was possible? How do they react? You know, rural people are not used to use computer. When we put on the computer, they are very astonished and they would like to compare it to a movie because they don't know internet. I decided to make students and teachers participate to check the knowledge. It wasn't my duty to go and explain all, but through question answers, we tried to show them the importance of Raven Niger through the pictures. When I introduced internet, people were first very happy because they used to understand a word without seeing, without understanding, without knowing what it is about. And for them, this was a chance to discover today internet. I talk about internet as means of communication, internet as means of information, and I talked about a different website as means of communication. I showed them the case of Skype, and I couldn't continue without telling about a social network as Twitter, as, as Facebook, as LinkedIn. I think a social network permit to interconnect people and. For me, people go on Facebook, on Twitter, to give information. This is true and this is necessary. But one overall rule is that it permits to people of different continents, from France, from China, from America, to get contact in Mali without coming here. I always laughed when a student, when he arrived and tried to, to touch the keyboard, he was happy because it was his first time 
he found it's not uh, difficult as he was speaking. And uh, everybody in the class was very, very happy, very surprised. So what equipment is needed to create a mobile internet station in, in these villages? What's needed? What we need is a computer, a solar panel, a battery, and a transformator to transform energy of the solar panel and the battery uh, so that it be adopted to the level of the battery. Only this and the internet connection key USB. And I think these materials are not uh, expensive. This idea, this initiative, I am not making money, but I know the importance of installing these materials in my village. And I am a teacher, I work on internet today, and getting some knowledge I want to share with villages. Do you know about the Technology for Transparency Network? The Technology for Transparency Network is a participatory research and mapping project. The aim is to gain a better understanding of the current state of online technology projects that increase transparency, government accountability and civic engagement in Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia, South Asia, China and Central and Eastern Europe. The project is co-founded by Open Society Institute's Information Programme and Omedia Network's Media, Markets and Transparency Initiative. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. Memories of school days may be closely linked to friends or enemies, but they may also be related to places and, of course, teachers. Some say the best teachers and the worst teachers are the ones that stay in your mind for years after you've left school. Veroniki Kriconi in Greece has this beautiful tribute to time, place and a teacher. Two things remain intense in my memory about my school years. The first one is a nostalgic feeling every time I passed by my old school where I spent all years of primary, junior high and high school. Back in the old days, I used to take the bus and arrive at school really early in comparison with my classmates. I was sitting in a corner of the schoolyard, watching it empty. The only sound was the echo of the tree leaves at winter. <laughs> when it was getting cold, I would rush inside the classroom, leave my things there, and roam to the huge and empty corridors and staircases. You see, I was thinking that every morning that was my labyrinth and I was its Ariadne, enjoying getting lost to different floors and wings and classrooms. <laughs> my second most intense memory was the loss of a beloved teacher of ours during the last year of my high school. He was our professor of music. He was in charge of the school choir, would spend time teaching us more things than he could just find in books. He would be even an advisor for personal matters of his students. At the middle of the year, we learned that he would stop teaching because of his illness, so a new professor came to replace him. My last memory of him was when he came to watch our final rehearsals at the end of the year. He was, he was thin, 
His face was only bones behind his glasses. He had lost his uh, hair because of the chemotherapy. My professor of music died on June 21st, a World Music Day. Do you know about Global Voices Lingua? Project Lingua amplifies Global Voices stories in languages other than English with the help of volunteer translators. It opens the line of communication with non-English-speaking bloggers and readers of Global Voices by translating content into other languages. Find out more at Global Voices online slash Lingua. These times of learning in our childhood can help make us who we are today. But it's also the adventures in the playground that stay with us forever. Sirus Fariva is a technology journalist, radio reporter, producer and author. He's currently based in Bonn. He describes an event that we can be glad that he did not take up as a hobby. I grew up in Santa Monica, California, which is a beach suburb of Los Angeles. And one of the things that every kid who goes to elementary school or primary school, as it's called in many other parts of the English-speaking world, you know, is you have something called recess. Of course, you know, this is a playtime when kids can just kind of run around the playground and, and play games and whatnot. And at my elementary school, every day at recess, uh, we had a shopping cart that sat out on the playground and it was filled to the brim with these big red bouncy balls. So as soon as recess was called, you know, kids would run out and they would grab a ball and they would go and start playing different games. And, and we had all kinds of games. We had one game called Four Square, which involved hitting the red ball in a square and the square was divided up into four parts. And there was a variant of Four Square called Long Square, which instead of four squares within a large square. It was four squares in a long rectangle, but it was sort of a similar game. And then there was a game called handball, which is not the handball that you play in the Olympics, but is handball that you play against a large green wall, kind of like racquetball, except with a large bouncy red ball. So there would be this shopping cart of these big red balls, and all the kids would run out and try to grab one. Every kid always wanted to grab one of these balls, you know, because if you were the first one to the little shopping cart and were the first one to get a ball, then you could start a game, which, you know, was, I don't know, at least for me, uh, was always something that I wanted to do. I always found myself being in the position of having to come and join a game after it had started. But there was one particular day when I happened to be one of the first kids to the shopping cart. And I, I ran out and I got my hands on one of these balls and I was really excited. And everybody, I think, had the same feeling as me. You know, everybody wanted to get one of these balls and be a kid to control one of these games. You know, there were all these other kids trying to get the ball away from me and kind of crowding around me. And I, I just, you know, because this had never happened to me before, I was, I was very not used to having, having that so much attention kind of on me all at once. So all these kids are trying to get the ball away from me. And I'm standing there. Standing right next to me is my friend Lee. And Lee wasn't doing anything. He was just standing there next to me, and he wasn't trying to get the ball away from me. But just kind of out of anger and frustration and, I don't know, you could say rage, I guess, to some degree, I lashed out and bit my friend Lee on the hand right between his forefinger and thumb, right there on kind of the, the fleshy part of his hand. It's really funny, kind of in retrospect, because I don't really know why. Lee didn't do anything. 
He wasn't trying to get it, the ball away from me. And, and he was one of my good friends, you know, and he's still a good friend now. But he just happened to be standing there. And I just was feeling just so kind of overwhelmed and, and just really lashed out and, and, and bit him on the hand. I didn't break the skin. I did leave a couple of bite marks on his hand. And I think both of us were kind of more shocked than anything else. I um, was, you know, immediately sent to the principal's office and my, my parents were called and it was explained to them what had happened. And I think everybody, you know, myself included, was sort of dumbfounded all around because I'm not somebody who is usually physical toward people. I've never been in a fight or anything like that. Not then, not before then, and not since. So I was sent home for the rest of the day. I was suspended from school. And, uh, you know, this is something that Lee and I still joke about to this day. He's a good guy. And and yeah, and that was the uh, most trouble that, that I've ever gotten in in school. So I've never never been suspended or, or done anything like that uh, since uh, in school. Well, thank goodness for forgiving friends. And thank goodness for the formative experiences in the playground that help us find our way. Playground politics can be a minefield, but Juliana Rincon Pará in Colombia remembers how she found her way and showed her strengths at playtime. In my earliest days, being a twin meant always having the ideal playmate nearby. My sister and I would make up stories, using our imaginations to turn our backyard into the setting of dozens of adventures. We would take turns to fill the roles necessary in our games, the bad guys, the heroines, and the awkward sidekicks. Once we went into kindergarten, we started discovering how other children played. There was a playhouse in the garden of my preschool. The possibilities and scenarios were endless, except for one hurdle. I needed a playmate. My twin sister was in another part of the building, so I went to recruit a suitable companion. I tried with a couple of boys, but wasn't too successful. One declared it was boring, the other humored me, until I made the mistake of sending him off to work. He left, never to return. Single playhousehood wasn't in my plans, so I went to recruit a girl. I cajoled one away from her Barbies to join me. Inside the house, I foisted on her a lunchbox as a briefcase and a hat. She stood there looking puzzled. But who is a dad? We need a boy. I told her that I had already tried to recruit boys, but they didn't know how to play, and I was sure she would be a lot better at it. She didn't buy it. I realized this was going to be harder than I thought, and so I ran out to the toy box. I put on a tie, jacket, and glasses. With my briefcase and hat, my costume was complete. I made a beeline for the playhouse. My teacher intercepted me to ask me what I was doing. I explained that I was going to play house and I had to hurry up because my friend was waiting. She looked concerned and asked me to please give her the boy clothes I was wearing. Was I in trouble? She took my costume, took me to the playhouse and told my friend to go back to playing with her Barbies. I felt uncomfortable and ashamed while my teacher kept me in the playhouse and tried to teach me the proper way to play by doing senseless household tasks with no purpose. The fun was gone. A little while later, I begged off and went to sit by myself on a swing, desperately missing my twin sister. As I kicked my feet, I went from ashamed into frustration and anger. As I swung higher, I understood the teacher was wrong. You didn't actually need a boy, or even plates and dishes to play house. You just needed an imagination. Some years later during recess, I sat with other girls on the grass, my orange My Little Pony in hand, trying to get more involved with the apparently better female pursuits my teachers kept pushing at me. I looked over at the hill where I usually played with the boys in the class. 
we played Transformers, and though they insisted there were no girls in Transformers, they had made the allowance to include the renegade Gobot Crasher from another TV series. I saw my male classmates running my way. One of the boys stopped and looked at me. Why aren't you playing with us today? I'm playing with ponies, I told him. He furrowed his brow and asked, is it fun? I replied that actually it wasn't that fun. Baffled, he asked me why I was playing that instead of with them. Didn't I have fun with them? I made up my mind. I handed over my pony for safekeeping to one of the girls, tightened the Velcro on my shoes and sped off with my friend out over the playground. There were transformers to be saved. Back in the classroom, school can be a time when you realize where you may want to go later in your life, but getting there is not always easy. A boy named Ethan Zuckerman grew up to be the co-founder of Global Voices, along with so many other accomplishments. Here, he tells us about one thing that seemed insurmountable, but turned out to be a very useful skill. I don't know how it was at your school, but at Meadow Pond Elementary School, fourth grade was when things got serious. Up till then, the teachers were your friends. They'd play games with you, they'd read your stories, they'd give you a hug if you were having a bad day. But in fourth grade, my teacher was Georgia Taylor. She didn't give a whole lot of hugs. Miss Taylor was tough. She wasn't shy about making you do assignments over again if there was something she didn't like about your performance. And what she didn't like about my work was my handwriting. If I went to school these days, I would be diagnosed as dysgraphic, and I would have been given extra help. But Miss Taylor was convinced that I just needed to concentrate more, work a little bit harder. So I'd hand in a book report, and she'd hand it back, telling me the content was just fine, that the spelling was all correct, but that my handwriting was terrible, and that I needed to rewrite it. So I would rewrite it, and then I'd turn it in again. And she'd give it back to me and tell me to rewrite it, only this time I would have to rewrite it during recess. After a couple of weeks of this, I forgot the school even had a playground. I just sat at my desk when everybody else went out to recess because I knew that I'd be sitting and practicing my handwriting. I think Miss Taylor got sick of me too because she started sending me home with my papers to rewrite as my homework and bring them back in the next day. So on one particular assignment, a book report, I was on maybe my seventh rewrite, and I was sitting at the kitchen table, and I, I started crying, and I told my mom, I keep trying, nothing's ever good enough for her, she's going to make me do this for the rest of the year. And so my mother told me to put the pencil down, to go upstairs and read a book, and the next day she did two things. She talked to Miss Taylor, she asked whether it really made sense for me to rewrite the same paper time and time again. And when I was home that evening, she taught me how to type. Now, Miss Taylor still made me rewrite my work, but I would start to turn in two copies, a typewritten copy and a handwritten copy. So she'd grade the typewritten one, and I'd get good marks, and then she'd make me rewrite the handwritten one, but she'd usually only make me do it once or twice. And that's how I survived fourth grade. And after that, I would tell my teachers, my handwriting's not very good. Would it be okay if I just turned in the homework to you typewritten instead? And not a single one said no. I haven't written in cursive since the fourth grade. Even my printed handwriting is totally unreadable. But I type really, really fast. And it's a skill that I use every day of my life, whether I'm writing code or writing essays or writing emails. And people will turn to me in conferences where I'm taking notes or in classrooms or even on airplanes and say, how did you learn to type so fast? And I always tell them, it's just something I picked up in the fourth grade. 
Having a hard time at school with your teachers can lead to better things and smart solutions, as Ethan's story proves. But unfortunately, many of us grew up surrounded with a few friends, but more enemies. Bullying at school is an international problem, and finding the right answer is not easy. One person who has suffered at the hand of bullies is Vuk. He's a 12-year-old blogger and son of Danitsia, and they live in Serbia. Together they explained what happened, and what it is like to go to school under this type of pressure. When I first started school, I didn't fit in. And it was kind of like that for the next four years. And then the summer before fifth grade, the bullying actually started. Name calling. They were kind of focusing on me. There was one, actually, he was in my class. He wasn't really normal. He wasn't normal because his dad beats him. On the beginning of school, my day was usually like they were trying to pick on me, but I didn't care. And at the end, I would like to punch somebody. At the end of the school day, I would like to punch somebody. I really couldn't stand it. So my grades went down, and I lost concentration and focus, and I just didn't have the will to do it. As a parent, you feel terribly helpless. I really believe in individuality, and that's what I've tried to instill in my child. And allowing your child to be an individual is tough to begin with in any situation, even in a normal and safe environment. I told his kindergarten teacher to just let it go unless it was really getting to, you know, a physical encounter between them, which it mostly wasn't until Luke actually made it into a physical encounter, which I wasn't expecting. Thank you. But I tried to teach Luke because, again, this is these, these are his peers. And this is him, you know, even in kindergarten and at, what was it, age four and a half or five, he needed to integrate into his own kind of, you know, world and society. So I've been trying to go for that this whole time. And I've been trying to give him this stoic attitude of, you know, don't just put up with anything, but try to fight it out for yourself. And, you know, don't resort to violence, but do protect yourself and try this and try that. So you're trying to instill these kind of basic principles into your child that you believe and that we were all taught will allow him to have a healthy development and a healthy adult life later on. And then you're in the situation where you realize that the school isn't helping much because they can't, because it's just all running around in circles and there's way too much bullying going on. And then you just basically don't know what to do. It's very frustrating. And yes, I was afraid to send him to school every day, although I didn't admit that to him until about a month ago. I started having him take a cab to school and back from school more because I wanted to release some of the tension that he was feeling in getting to school safely and coming home. Mm -hmm. So you try doing that. You try all sorts of solutions. He asked my ex-husband and me not to go to the teacher anymore, not to try to resolve this through the normal channels in school because we had tried it for a year and a half and it didn't work and it kept getting worse. And I respected his wishes. I was at a stalemate. It was extremely frustrating. As an adult, you're in this place where you, you have no solution and you kind of feel like you don't have any way out and you're trying to help your child and you feel pretty helpless. And to be honest, you feel pretty scared. That's why we just talked it out. We talked it out all the way. And when I did finally go to talk to the school again and to his principal, and when I finally decided to pull him out of school, it was a decision that we made together. 
in my new school, well, they're kind of like normal. They just want to have fun, like normal kids, except there's no really bullies. For the kids, I want to say I was lucky to go to a private school, but some aren't as that lucky. So I would like to say, like, I found someone to talk to. That was my mom and my dad, usually my mom. So I found someone I could trust and talk to. And, well, that's my advice. Find someone you can talk to. It doesn't have to be their parents. It doesn't have to be even adult. It can be an older brother or sister, just someone. You can't go through that alone. Good advice from a young man who knows from experience. If you're facing a bully, don't go through it alone and find someone you can talk to. With some help, things can get better. Do you know about Global Voices Advocacy? With Global Voices Advocacy, we seek to build a global anti-censorship network of bloggers and online activists throughout the developing world dedicated to protecting freedom of expression and free access to information online. Find out more at globalvoicesonline.org. When it comes to education, some of us learned in the places we were born. Some, like me, had a divided education between countries, and some chose to study abroad as they got a bit older. François Xavier Aida Afana is a writer and translator, and describes himself on his blog as a nice Cameroonian finding his way in the world. Here, he tells us how studying in a different country can shape who you become. Attending a foreign university for all or part of your degree may make sense on academic grounds, but there are other benefits to be gained. In terms of personal development, few experiences can have such a positive impact as living in a foreign country and getting to grips with a different educational culture. What attracted me to Cyprus was its history principally. Studying international relations, which covers history as well, I was fascinated by the fact that Cyprus alone was occupied by Assyrians, Egyptians, Persians, Ruzinians, Venetians and Ottomans. Those subsequent invasions designed a geographical context full of history and memories. The style of education too was different. I moved from crowded and noisy classrooms and amphitheaters to lower ones with fewer peers to increase and maximize the attention of both the students and the lecturer. It is a completely different style of learning and very much focused on class participation. Being immersed in an entirely new cultural setting is scary at first, but it's also exciting. It's an opportunity to discover new strengths and abilities, conquer new challenges and solve new problems. You will encounter situations that are wholly unfamiliar to you and will learn to adapt and respond in effective ways. Studying in Cyprus gives me more than quality education. On top of that, I discovered myself and learned more about the outer world. It is not my first travel experience, but the longer I stay in Cyprus, the deeper the discovery. I learned to be more effective, respectful of other cultures and political and economic systems, and willing to take a stand for the world's welfare and justice, not just for what benefits a big country. For our final story, a journey. A journey into the past and the path that we took to school each day. Victor Kaunga is a broadcast journalist in Mali. In his description of the morning walk to school, there is a vision of maybe all of us and the carefree nature of a child heading on their way. I can't just believe that I would walk three kilometres every day, Monday through Fridays, going to my primary school to attend classes. That would begin at half past seven. You know how old I was at that time? 
I was only eight and I was going into grade two, which normally in Malawi is called standard two. This was the time when I had never been to a nursery school. So for me, standard one or grade one and two were actually introductory classes. But you know why I remember this story? It's special because certainly I was very young. And now when I visit the area, I notice actually it's quite a distance. And I keep asking myself, how did I manage? Only at eight, walking three kilometers, and I was only in standard two. And especially at that time, I would walk on barefoot, had no shoes, that's what it means. In the rains, we would just use, you know, banana leaves. We would just fly them over our head and just walk over to school. My parents could not afford even an umbrella. These days when I look back at that distance, because I do drive by the distance, I I can't just believe that actually this could happen. But it's true, the same school that I was there in those years, as I look back, I realize almost 30 years ago, it's actually the same school and has remained the same school to date. The distance has remained the same. It's only that now it appears much shorter though. But when I drive by, I realize actually it's about that long. It's memories of the past, memories of those days, and I just say, wow, you know, it could get wet. But uh, interestingly, because part of the road that we used was Tamak Road, we would actually would enjoy the splash of the waters as we walk, you know, in tarred roads as you walk. And when the rains have fallen, you know, there's sort of like a, a stream of water. So as children, we would enjoy, and we would enjoy with the, those flashes, ta, 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 and we just, and then we ran. And then, of course, unfortunately, would arrive into the class rather wet, very uncomfortable to sit in the class, not only for ourselves, but also for others. But thank God that he saw us through. Now that's a story of the past. It can only be shared. No more to be experienced. That's all we have for this edition. Listening to school and educational stories this time around is a reminder of the things that make us so similar, no matter where we are in the world. The thing that brings us all together are those years when we were all inexperienced, And now we can look back and wonder at what we have become. A huge thanks to all of the team here who took time to take us back in their lives, as well as those who shared a picture of education today. I think we all learned something. The Global Voices Podcast. The world is talking. I hope you've been listening. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Global Voices. You can follow Global Voices Stories on Facebook too.